0: Hello and welcome to React Roundup. I'm Justin Minist. I'm your host today. I'm gonna to be standing in for Charles while he's at CES. Our guest today is Chris Anderson. Chris, wanna say hi?
1: Hey everyone, thanks for having me.
0: And today we're gonna to be talking about some pretty cool things uh, like GemStacks and FaunaDB.
1: So Chris, do you wanna go ahead and give us an intro? Sure. So I've been working in noSQL databases for about a decade now. I was one of the co-founders of Couchbase and now I'm working on FaunaDB doing dev outreach and, you know, writing kind of code to connect with different ecosystems whether that's serverless or the Jamstack or React Native and it's a lot of fun to you know, write those examples and and try out those uh, various platforms uh, along with Fauna DB.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So how did you get
1: connected with Fauna? So the founding team at Fauna are uh, core data engineers from Twitter who had uh, previously conquered the fail whale and they decided they wanted to build the database they wish they had had when they were going through that process. So they built What's I think maybe the first enterprise NoSQL. So it's got the functionality that you would expect from a relational database, but it's also got the scalability and flexibility of a NoSQL database.
0: Oh, that's that's pretty interesting. Cool. So I want to talk about Jamstacks really quick. Uh so Jamstacks tend to be a pretty uh popular topic these days uh, especially with services like Netlify and now that make deployments easy and things like um Next.js which make you know s- standing up a Jamstack pretty pretty simple um so when you're when you're working with Jamstacks kind of what's your preferred setup
1: yeah well my favorite thing about Jamstack is that it's all these best best practices coming together Kind of aligning with how new developers are coming in. So, whether I'm working with like an enterprise with engineers who, you know, invented these best practices, or I'm working with people at a code school, they all understand the value of, you know, having a well defined build step for your application and having all that automated by a service like Netlify and having that separation of concerns between your essentially your compiled application deliverable and you know the APIs that it depends on. So I see Jamstack as kind of coming up from both ends of the industry, people who are creating their fun experimental project apps as well as folks who want to deploy, you know, worldwide high performance assets that talk to worldwide APIs. So it's pretty cool to see it coming from both ends of the spectrum. Personally, like my love for this stuff is in the README of the example apps. So we have a handful of examples that Fauna and Netlify have been working with together to integrate Netlify Identity with FaunaDB and allow you to make you know serverless connections direct from the web browser to the database. And for today's show, I. You know dug in yesterday a little bit to do some work and and see how easy it would be to connect to the same database from react native and it was so easy that you know I just I didn't even really need to have done the work. It's just a JavaScript module that you're able to import into your application and make queries to faunaDb
0: that's really awesome um it It kind of never ceases to amaze me how we can do these fairly complex things so simply there's a lot of complexity under the hood and you know it's it's kind of a common complaint in the javascript ecosystem about how like how much stuff there is but that that example that you're saying is just like you know setting up some sort of like really uh thin integration with react native and like font bb or something like that like it's a really hard thing to do if you're just having to do everything kind of by hand and out of the box, or not out of the box. So it's it's really cool that it exists. Uh, so what was the package name that kind of plugged all that together?
1: Oh, it's just the fauna DB NPM module. So oh, oh, wow. <laughs> really <laughs> nice. what I, you know, it's been a while. I did some React Native work way back when it was first launched. And then uh, this week I decided to you know, refresh my experience in there. And it's really matured a long way. So back when I first started, we didn't have Yarn and we certainly didn't have Expo and the amount of work it would have taken to get an app so that I was seeing, you know, live refresh on my phone with the debugger on my workstation and, you know, installing modules from the internet and You know, not having to worry about Webpack config or, you know, anything like that and and having everything just work. It would have been, you know, days at the easiest and it was just, I spent maybe an hour tracking down, you know, one error message before I got everything up and running. Yeah,
0: React Native has come a long way and Expo in particular has made that a lot easier. We actually talked to one of the founders of Expo not too long ago and that was a great episode. You want to check it out? Cool. So so when you're setting up a Jamstack or, you know, something like, let's just, you linked one of the articles about, like, setting up a, having a setup where you have your React app that's connected to Netlify functions that connects to Fauna. So kind of, like, walk us through, like, what that setup looks like and really just taking a step back, like, so let's say we have, like, a new, React developer who's kind of coming out and getting involved and like learning and exploring some of these technologies, like why would they want to use this sort of approach? Sure.
1: So at its simplest, the way to understand the stack is that Netlify takes your Git repo and automatically creates the build assets. So running NPM build, or if you have a tool chain in another language, you can configure it to do that. So you don't have to run any continuous um, build infrastructure. It's all managed for you. When new commits go online, Netlify builds and um, deploys them for you, and they can be deployed to preview branches as well as uh, to the main master branch. So your app is going to look very familiar if you've ever used like Create React app. That stack is just 100% what the Jamstack is built to deal with. And then once your app is running in the browser, it's gonna be able to connect to serverless functions and directly to the database, depending on what you're doing. Serverless functions are like a JavaScript function that's registered with a cloud provider and called via an API gateway or triggered from events in the cloud. And what's important about them compared to like running a server you know, with some code on it, is that you don't have to manage the runtime at all. You don't have to do any operational stuff. You just inject your code and uh, the cloud provider runs it for you and then charges you on a per execution basis. So some people like it because it saves them money. Other people like it because it gives them operational resilience that they just aren't in the position to um, you know, create for themselves. It certainly simplifies the stack so that developers are only thinking about application level concerns. And uh, that's why I like it. So you have these functions that are, you know, fairly well encapsulated, like maybe one of them handles, you know, running a complex query and applying some, um, you know, security filters to the result set. But the, you don't want to run those functions all the time if you can help it because, it's possible for users to hit cold functions where the cloud runtime hasn't, you know, hasn't actually warmed up that particular code path lately, and uh, it's also just an extra hop that could be unnecessary if your database has uh, the security model support it. So, a really common pattern that you'll see both mobile apps and React apps do is make API calls directly to the database. And FaunaDB supports that with a role-based access control that allows you to create workgroup areas for data and have users invite each other to them or build you know, more complex patterns so that you can do a whole lot of the CRUD and query operations directly from the mobile app to the database server or from the browser to the database server. And then when you need them, these JavaScript functions running in the cloud can do, you know, the sort of things that maybe you need to have some kind of, you know, elevated access privileges to to do a search query or something. And so those are run uh, in the cloud and then the results sent to the user. So
0: that's really interesting. So... In this case, fauna would manage all the all the permissions for your application, and so the the lambda functions or the the functions that are kind of running on the cloud they don't actually have. Do they have a way to access the the permission system to say like, I'm requesting that this update is made. Make it if you have permissions. If not, like fail or something. Is that?
1: Yeah, there's the key system is incredibly flexible. Uh, your most basic, you're going to issue a server key that can do, you know, anything to the database and you'll embed it in your cloud functions and then everything will talk through that. And so that's going to be, you know, kind of the same model you'll be familiar with, with other NoSQL databases. Uh, But if you want to, you can give the database additional access control rules and say like, you know, only users are allowed to search for other users and, you know, users can, um, Invite users can access the the documents that they've been added to as members. Um, so you can encode those kind of rules in the database if you want, and it allows you to bypass any you know lambda function as a service logic for your basic crowd application calls and simplifies your stack as well as cutting some latency out of you know the user experience. And that's it's not a new pattern. There's um, you know plenty of cloud databases plenty of applications that, you know, make a direct query to something like DynamoDB or Firebase. So FaunaDB is going to be in the same class as those in terms of allowing you to safely query from the edge to the database.
0: Cool. So speaking of Firebase, um, what, what would be the kind of differences between Fauna and Firebase?
1: The biggest difference is that Fauna is built with the uh, enterprise correctness and, you know, the, the, the kind of features that you look for in a relational database. It's built from the ground up to offer those. So we have a hierarchical multi-tenancy that allows you to serve your SaaS application customers from FaunaDB Cloud and meter their individual usage. We have transactions that can be committed uh, worldwide across multiple regions. So that allows you to use the database for distributed ledger workloads And it gives us, you know, mainframe-like capabilities. We end up, uh, you know, doing a lot of financial services and, you know, any kind of... The workloads that are still left, you know, lingering on an Oracle or on a mainframe because NoSQL hasn't had the correctness to manage them. A lot of that is, uh, you know, that's a lot of the, um, the use cases that we're seeing these days. So if you can imagine taking those, you know, high value, uh, important data, you know, mission critical business objects, and then giving them the NoSQL flexibility and accessibility and scalability. So a lot of what's happening in, you know, these industries that are modernizing their IT stacks is that they're taking um, services that used to be, you know, strictly on the back end and making them more available so that, you know, they can get, more value out of their, you know, their ledgers or their uh, credit credit rating applications, you know, or their user identity management.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. It's often hard to figure out when you're building a product what the needs of your application are, and then like trying to fit those pieces together. So it's, it's kind of cool to hear more about like what's available before, before talking to you earlier, I hadn't, I hadn't really explored Fauna too much, but very familiar with like a lot of, uh, NoSQL databases out there. And, you know, there can be some, some problems that you don't think about early on if you're not like an expert in the area, like, um, you know, reliable transactions or something like that. So it's, it's kind of good to hear about those, those sorts of feature sets.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, we're in a good place, I think, that a lot of folks are starting to remember the value that they're able to get out of relational databases, you know, and uh, with the data integrity, and the transactions and the, you know, the advanced access control features. And, you know, they still see that there's some productivity benefits to NoSQL, and they want to be native to the cloud. So moving to Postgres doesn't quite feel like the right answer. In some ways, it's a step back moving to a cloud managed service that's, you know, purely with one vendor is also risky because you're, you know, you're gonna end up locked into that cloud provider. So structurally in the long term, you know, assuming all databases trend toward perfect will be the one that runs on all the cloud providers so that you're not locked in.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So do you offer like a managed like setup
1: with like different cloud providers or how does that exactly work? Because we have the multi-region replication, when you sign up on FaunaDB Cloud, your data is in GCP and AWS by default, and you can query it you know, locally from you know, function as a service or from VMs running in either of those environments. And if you have a on-premise license of FaunaDB, then you can do the same with whatever data centers you want. So you'll get ACID transactions across all your data centers, and if you're running some you know, in Azure and some in AWS, then your data uh, is in both with correctness and it allows you to, you know, utilize services running in, you know, either environment and have them have a low latency connection to the database. I got you.
2: Well, that's awesome. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
0: Cool. So let's let's pull it back a little bit and talk about... Um, well, actually, I want, I want to kind of verge off on a little, slightly different topic. So your your revolt, your role is kind of with uh, developer relations for for fauna, but I want to talk about a little bit of your kind of approach to just sharing information creating content things like that like so the the front end world specifically the the react community has a lot of content out there, but there's a lot more people who want to be better about you know creating more content getting themselves out there you know having more of an impact on the community being more of a community member and i know you're in a unique position where this is actually your your job so um if you were to like give any tips or advice to people who are kind of looking to either establish a more of a presence or maybe they want to work towards you know a similar like developer relations sort of role do you have any advice for those kind of people
1: Absolutely. There's two things I think you can do to really make yourself stand out. Uh, one is in terms of deciding which areas to create content. Find places that are already relevant where folks who are going to care about your technology are already paying attention, and where your technology isn't showing up yet. And it's not always going to be the same like industry trade press that you and your engineers are reading. It's going to be you know something adjacent. So. If you are building a database product, talk to mobile developers. If you're building, you know, like a um, CSS library, you might not want to only just talk to designers, but also talk to the kind of developers who, you know, might benefit from if they're not going to have a designer in the first place, then they'd be better off with your library than nothing. Um, So you always kind of want to find where those adjacent communities are. And then what I do is I've, Put myself, you know, I try to imagine if I'm brand new to this community, this technology, what's my learning path going to be? And I'm going to end up on some README of some project that's the right place to be for 80% of beginners. And if I can figure out how to make my technology relevant at that step in that context, then I know that, you know, then it's a good fit for the community. And if I can actually do a pull request and show up there, then I know I'm going to get in front of the people who are learning that stack right then. So in terms of figuring out what to work on and where to show up, I feel like that's a pretty surefire process. And it doesn't have to just be limited to pull requests. You can also do that kind of investigation and realize that like now would be a good time to write some blog posts about your technology in GraphQL, or you know now would be a good time to write about your technology in Kubernetes. I got you. Cool. That really resonates.
0: Uh, So I bought the Refactoring UI book recently, which has been uh, an awesome read. But the idea of that is like giving design tips specifically to developers. It seems to be sort of that same sort of mind shift. It's like if you're wanting to talk about design, switching to an adjacent community and targeting like straight developers might be a great way to kind of, you know, target a different audience.
1: Well, and to the second half of your question about how to establish yourself uh, for a career in developer evangelism. I think the most powerful thing that I see folks doing is just lots of short screencasts of when they're, you know, unboxing a new simulator toolkit for the first time or how to debug, you know, such and such using, you know, this this developer tool chain. So, you know, even if it's just three minutes about how to... uh, upgrade to the latest yarn or something, putting your personality out there, you know, on parts of the stack that are relevant is a great way to set up, you know, to like show um, some backstory and, and get people excited about potentially hiring you for dev evangelism.
0: Right, right. So being that it's a new year and people are probably thinking about, you know, what what do I need to do? How do I need to manage my time? Where do I need to focus? What are your techniques for giving yourself productive time versus like, you know, learning or consumption time is like, do you have any like, oh, I write all my stuff in the mornings or, you know, some sort of like strategy like that?
1: I try to reserve my like clear thinking time for when I'm writing code. And if the topic is right for a blog post or for a screencast, then it'll kind of write itself. and. Maybe, you know, even if it's at the end of the day, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll manage to push out an 80% draft and then come look at it again with fresh eyes in the morning. But for me, I reserve my most productive time for exactly that, like learning a new stack, you know, trying to exercise my radar about where it makes sense to be involved and, and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's cool. One of the things that some of my coworkers encourage is kind of... Um to go through the process of like when you're figuring out um, a hard challenge or something that you find interesting that you would like to write about. It's like, while you're in that to start like outlining something and I've tried that a few times and it's been, it's been pretty successful for me so far. Uh, granted I can see where it might like break some people's flow, but that to me is like, a, as I'm going through the thing or right after I finish, like going ahead and getting some of this really fresh thoughts, the like really insightful things down and hopefully, some of those things are the things that really pop out to people. It's like, oh, that was like super interesting. I feel like a lot of times when you're giving content or when you're writing content or preparing content, there's generally only like a few like major points that really pop out and stick with people. Um, especially if you're doing something like a, a talk or something. That's um,
1: true. The simpler, the better.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. But I'm still kind of iterating on, like, all right, how can I, how can I find what that sweet spot is? What is that like really simple, distilled message that you know I can convey for this thing?
1: And a lot of the time, it's going to be the simplest message is going to be a business value message, and you know, and sometimes, like for instance, I'm thinking of, I did a blog post recently about. Uh, an application where they use the built-in history support in fauna DB to add uh, a way for users to browse an event stream of what their employees were doing, and it's a ton of business value and almost no code. So uh, they, you know, they're sort of like, "Well, we're not really doing anything that exciting with fauna." And then as soon as I saw what they were doing, the ratio of business value to code was was so great that. You know, you got to tell that story, even if there's not much code to point at.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that's kind of the ideal scenario. (laughs) Very little code, lots of value. (laughs) Good place to be, for sure. (laughs) I find that recently, as as I'm writing um, React applications specifically, I'm still kind of working through that sort of like, there's always this trade-off between like business value, your developer experience and the like overall like kind of complexity and scale of the application that you're building and that is it's such a hard like balance um because things kind of tend to trend towards being more complex and you have to really kind of understand the the domain that you're in and as you like really get a better idea of what you're building then it's kind of easier like pull back on the complexity a little bit but it's it's a really hard, hard balance. Um, like most of the things that we do are
1: Yeah, adding features is the dangerous game.
0: <laughs> yeah. I uh earlier in my career, you know, it was like, oh yeah, we can make it do this and do this and do this. And now I'm just like, We could, <laughs> but are you sure?
1: <laughs> yeah, the similar one, of course, has been in the news a lot lately is when your open source project gets popular and then you move on from it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. It's really interesting that like a lot of people who, well, not everybody like created the open source project when it gets popular, right? A lot of people like jump in on it afterwards. So, I can think of, like, a few examples of, like, you know, big open source things where, like, you know, maybe they were kind of sizable when they um, got popular, but, like, the main maintainer stepped back maybe for, you know, just because open source can be kind of exhausting sometimes. And then, like, somebody else comes in and ends up dealing with, like, you know, a lot of that that emotional (laughs) energy that goes into open source sometimes. Yeah. It's an exciting thing to have, like, this community that you can contribute to and like build new stuff, but it's also uh, a little, little exhausting sometimes.
1: Well, that's why I'm excited about React Native. As somebody who writes these example applications, yeah, I always enjoy taking a web application and like tearing all the web off of it and putting it in a mobile context because the stuff that you find that is still in common between the two of them lets you focus on, you know, your business rules and what the essence of the app really is. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, being that you go through that experience a lot, you definitely should
0: write about those setups. Um, just like sometimes, it's really easy for someone who's new and getting started to get frustrated when they hit a wall, and unfortunately, those walls can come pretty early. Um, so with things like React Native, I haven't I haven't been through a whole lot of fresh setups recently. But I know back you know a year ago, a year and a half ago, when I was really trying to. To start diving into React Native and playing with it more is like I hit some some walls in the setup like early on. And those sorts of things can like really just uh kind of zap the the energy out of somebody, especially if they're new and they're learning it for the first time. So like definitely raising up it's like, hey, <laughs> here's here's a good way to set this up. And if you have this problem, this is what you do. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. The way I see it when I'm talking to new developers is that and it's not necessarily because eventually you get so good at it, but eventually the code isn't the hard part anymore. And, you know, kinda why I say that is that you learn that if you get to the part where the code's the hard part, you could probably route around it. And in this context, I think that if you start getting frustrated and you're working on an Android UI or something, sometimes it can be helpful just to be like, well, would I even care about those details if I'm looking at it of the perspective of we've got Android, iOS, React Native and a web UI, or am I just like trying to get the the highlight color on this button right? You know, am I trying too hard?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's nice when the code is the hard part. It's definitely a solvable problem. Some of the other things can be can be kind of kind of tough. Yeah. Cool. So, there, are there any other topics that you'd like to go into?
1: Uh, you know. I think that's about it. I just, I'm really impressed with how the React Native ecosystem has come together in the last couple of years uh, for that fresh start experience. I think I, I got pretty far without running into anything. And I can imagine people getting even farther.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's always a joy to stand up a new React uh, Native project and just that, that kind of first UI that you start working on and I don't know, it's so satisfying just to like have live updates on a native app. I mean, I, I can remember thinking like way beginning of my career, I started working on Android apps and the experience was okay, but it was still pretty frustrating. You know, just like still slow turnaround times between iterating things and like we've come a really, really long ways. Um, and especially if you think about like, you know, think about like back, 10 years ago, or something, is like, would we be thinking about using JavaScript and um, native apps in the way that we do today? It's like,
1: right. Would I be thinking, hey, this is an environment that might be a good one for teaching my eight year old how to get stoked about code? Because, right, um, right. I definitely wouldn't have been thinking that five years ago.
2: Nope. Nope. Probably not.
0: Cool. All right. It's been a short episode today, but there's a lot of people on travel. Um, so we might just go ahead and wrap it up. But before we
1: do, Chris, do you have any picks for this? Oh, wow. Well, I like I said, I've been getting into that React Native ecosystem. And so I really have enjoyed the React Native Starter Kit. I can find the uh, uh, yeah the McNammy slash React Native Starter Kit. That's a great place to go on GitHub if you want to get started. Also really am impressed by the Expo tool and the way all that fits together. So I think this ecosystem is pretty cool. I suppose my other pick for folks who do that stuff all the time, but don't get out into the website of the world much is Netlify. If you just go through the kind of beginner examples on Netlify, you'll be using the best practices that people in the web world have settled on, you know, after years of getting all the pieces lined up just right. Yep. Awesome. So my
0: picks for this week, I have to reiterate the Refactoring UI book um, that came out recently is is excellent. So as a part of my career has been interesting and I've got to work really strongly between like design and engineering teams, just kind of trying to establish like, you know, common languages and, and like help be that glue between the teams. And there's a lot of the early parts of this book that you know, evangelize the same sorts of things that, you know, I hear designers trying to communicate to de- developers all the time. It's like constraints are good for design, you know, have a limited set of, you know, colors and font sizes and all that stuff. It's, it's really great book. Um, so I highly recommend you check it out. And then my second pick is there's a cool project that uh, was written over the break by Evan Yu, the creator of Vue.js. There's a repo on GitHub called Build Your Own Mint. So he's using this service called Played, and it can scrape your uh, your banking records um, and pull that data out for you in an API that you can easily wire up to something. So he's wiring it up to a G sheet so that he can make a, an automatic budget. It's kind of really cool, very relevant, being that you know we're in the new year, thinking about like, okay, how can I be better this year than I was last year? So finances is something that was already in my head, and then I came across this article. I was like, ah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So with that, I think we're going to r- wrap it up for today. Uh, sorry it's been a little bit short, but thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Justin.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit... C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.